here we are. We're back. It's Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. So glad you would join us today. I hope you are doing well. You know, this is the season for doing well because resurrection never ends. Don't forget that. Resurrection never ends. Now, I get it. We have our ups and downs in life. Things are sometimes good. Things are sometimes bad. But resurrection never ends. And I think we can count on that to give us some certainty, some stability, even in difficult times. And I've been enjoying this week because we've had a little cooler weather here in my neck of the woods in Florida. I live in Cape Coral, Florida. That's where I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church. And I was really, how would you say, disappointed? Yeah, I guess that's the right word for it, that we had the hottest march on record. Uh, that's one report that I heard, the hottest march on record. Well, that, that didn't encourage me at all because I keep hoping for cooler weather in March because I know hotter weather is coming. And I also know by mentioning that some of you are saying, yeah, you want our winter weather? Well, some days I would like that, yes. I'm one of those odd people that there are days I miss cold weather. And we've had nicer weather this week, much less humidity, not quite as hot as it had been, nice cool mornings. But anyway, the point of that is this. We don't live our lives based on the weather, do we? You know, people get up on Sunday morning and it's cloudy and they say, oh, I don't want to go to church or it's rainy or it's, oh, maybe snowing or worse. And, and people look for any kind of an excuse to, to put that kind of stuff off. Well, don't let the weather stop you or get you down. Remember, resurrection never ends. Or as some people say, Easter never ends. And I know the celebration does, but resurrection never ends. And we need to, to keep that in mind. We live our lives between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We live with the understanding that all has been made new, but it's about to be made new in the completed sense. And because resurrection never ends, we can have that perspective. And so I hope you will remind yourself, especially this time of the year, that resurrection never ends. Well, we want to look at another story related to the resurrection. It actually took place on that resurrection day many years ago. We sometimes lose track of the chronology of it, or maybe I should say I do. But it's helpful to remember that this story that we're going to look at today actually took place on the same day that Jesus rose from the grave. And it's a fascinating story. It's a wonderful story. It's an insightful story. And I hope that it will help you as we navigate these days. It's the story of the people walking on the road to Emmaus. On that resurrection day, two people set out from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And what happened on that walk and what happened in those people? We're looking at that story from Luke chapter 24. That's where you'll find the story. I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version, updated edition, just because I like to use a standard English translation. It helps me when I look at these kind of things and study them. I encourage you to find an English translation of the Bible that you like and will read. If certain ones are just too difficult for you to plow through, then find a different one. There are plenty of good ones, and I think you will benefit by the, by the one that you will actually use 
and will actually read and think about and contemplate and let the stories of the Bible become part of the fabric of your life and guide your thinking, your way of living. Let the example and the teachings of Jesus point you in the right direction. All right, Luke 24, verse 13, is where we begin. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while we, he was walking, or he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Again, a fascinating story, really cool event that took place in Jesus' day and how he finally revealed himself to those guys. Or maybe they weren't both guys. Well, we'll talk about that as we get along. Anyways, the same day as Resurrection Day, and they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Now, Almost, in fact, every English text says this, and almost everyone agrees that it was seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. 
Um, we don't know the exact site of the Emmaus Luke describes. There's some question about that historically. We do have a pretty strong idea that it was west of Jerusalem. And, and you can look at maps. I consulted one map in one of the study Bibles I have. And yes, it's west of Jerusalem. And the text says about seven miles. Um, but one guy said something really interesting, and, and it relates to some other thoughts that people have suggested, that perhaps the the better understanding of this and the way it's written is that it was a seven-mile round trip, meaning three and a half miles one way. Well, that's possible. People have suggested that they may have been going to Emmaus to stay during their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Maybe they weren't residents of Emmaus or Jerusalem. Maybe they were going there because that's where they found a place to stay during the Passover celebration, during the festival. And that kind of makes sense because Jerusalem was a crowded place. Lots of people went. And so they may have decided to avoid the crowds and go out there. And, and a three and a half mile walk would not have been that difficult. Even today, people who walk frequently can walk a mile in 20 minutes. So it's not like it would be impossible to walk back and forth, go into Jerusalem for the day, then back to Emmaus for the evening. We don't know for sure. Um, we do know that there were two people walking along. And it says two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. While they were walking along, they were talking to each other. And we have one of them identified as Cleopas, which we understand to be a man, but we don't have the other one identified. And this is just an example of how we need to think carefully about what the Bible says. I have always thought, I think I have always heard people describe this as two men walking to Emmaus may well have been. But I don't think the text is that specific that it has to be men. And one writer that I consulted in working on preparing this, he suggested that it may have been Mrs. Cleopas. So it could have been a man and his wife that had gone to Jerusalem and were coming back, were walking together. We, we just don't know. But that's just a cautionary note. I'm not trying to undermine anybody's thoughts about this as much as to say, you know, we need to think carefully and, and be sure and observe carefully what the text actually says. So now they're, they're going along and it, and it says that the, that the two people, probably I will say men most of the time today, but the, the two people were kept from recognizing Jesus. So, so they were talking about all the stuff that had been going on, trying to process, trying to make sense of it. And they're walking along, and all of a sudden, someone else joins them, another man. And it was Jesus. The, the story tells us that it was Jesus, but they were kept from recognizing Jesus. Now, I, I find that very interesting, that they were kept from recognizing Jesus. And you'll see various suggestions for the, the mechanism for that and the, the why of that. I don't really think we know exactly why. We have some hints because of the way the story unfolds. I don't think we know exactly the mechanism of that. Some people have attributed to Satan was blinding their eyes. The text doesn't give any sense of that. And, and it says that they were disciples of Jesus, so that's a little harder to imagine. Uh, there's a suggestion that Jesus' appearance had changed enough that they wouldn't have recognized him, because certainly they weren't expecting to see him, because they couldn't quite make sense of all that was going on. And, and one of the ideas that, that I was considering and that I read about was that this idea that when 
you discover that your hope has been misplaced. It's very easy for hope to turn into despair. And it's clear that the followers of Jesus had a lot of hope in what he was going to accomplish. And it wouldn't be surprising that their hope had turned into despair because they had seen him die. And we need to guard our hearts so that our hope does not ever become despair. That's one reason that we remind each other through good times and not as good times that resurrection never ends because we always have hope in the risen Christ. Well, Jesus asked them what they're discussing. And, and, and here again, did you notice and did you think carefully about what it says here? Uh, when he asked them that question, what they were talking about, they stood still looking sad. So they, they stopped in their tracks like, what in the world? You don't know what's going on here? And, and of course, they were sad because of all the things that had happened. And they related to him what's going on. And, and uh, they, you know, they talked about how Jesus was a mighty prophet in word and in deed. It's interesting that they did not identify Jesus as the Son of God. And of course, he had clearly taught his followers that, but they didn't say that here. Um, but then there's a really remarkable statement, and, and I suppose it's, uh, it, it goes by us quickly, because sometimes we think about other things in the story, and that's okay. But, but Cleopas, he's made a most remarkable statement. He said to Jesus, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? I mean, are, are you the only one that doesn't know what happened in Jerusalem, all the things that had happened? Um, and and you, know, you, you have to kind of chuckle here, don't you? Because of all things, here they are asking Jesus, who knew very well what had happened, if he's the one who didn't know. He's the only one who really did know all that had happened and the implications of what it meant. Well, they still don't know who he is, and it's quite wonderful irony to think about that interaction there. They're talking to the one who really knows and wondering if he's the only one who doesn't know. Um, and and they, they make some other st statements. They talk about that they had hoped that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. And by that, they meant, was he the one that's going to deliver Israel from Rome? Because they did not like being under the the thumb of Rome, and they were looking forward to the day that someone would come along and deliver them from that, that oppression, that occupation. Well, so these two men who now talk to Jesus, they know the story because they were there. They heard that the women had seen the empty tomb, that some, that some other disciples had seen the empty tomb. They, they didn't seem to be convinced by the the testimony of the people who had seen the empty tomb they did they weren't certain that Jesus had risen certainly resurrection did not fit their expectations because they just couldn't quite wrap their mind around all that was going on uh, they they just they just didn't know how to connect all those dots and that's our problem sometimes isn't it we don't know how to connect all the dots well we need to, to keep working on that and and Jesus response to them is really quite quite interesting too uh Tell us what you really think, Jesus. Well, he uh, he listened to their story and uh, and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, 
<laughs> Jesus says, how foolish you are. Now, now, we don't generally think about Jesus making that kind of statement. We might say that's a little rude. But he, he called them foolish. He described them as slow of heart, to, that they didn't believe what the prophets had said. And, and well, you know, that's kind of, kind of tough, Jesus, to say that, that bluntly. And then he asked a rhetorical question in verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter his glory? So, so Jesus is really kind of, kind of trying to, to get them to, to hold on a minute and then to think this thing through. Um, and then he goes on to begin to explain to them what has gone on. In other words, he interpreted himself through Moses and the prophets. And, and, I, and I thought about that when I was looking at that again, and I thought, wow, I would sure love to, to know what Jesus said to them. Wouldn't you? I would sure love to know which specific things that Moses wrote and that the prophets wrote that he referred to and how it connects to point us to him. Uh, not, you know, <laughs> the silly part of us would say, well, well, we'll stream the video when we get to heaven. Well, I don't know if we'll be able to do that or not. Maybe, maybe the, those two people that walked on the Emmaus Road, maybe they'll tell us what Jesus said. Maybe there'll be a a transcript of the lecture? I, I don't know. That, that's just kind of, wouldn't that be cool? Maybe by then we won't care. But right now, I'm, I think to myself, wouldn't that have been fascinating to hear what they said and, and what they talked about, what Jesus explained to them? Well, can't go down that road very far because we can't know. But there are two things that we should make sure we notice about that. First thing is this. Jesus explains himself to them using the scriptures that they had, Moses and the prophets. And it's obvious from that that Jesus believes that those scriptures were and are about him. And, and we sometimes forget that. Sometimes we want to separate what we call the Old Testament from the New Testament, and I don't think that's a helpful perspective at all. And so Jesus believes that all of those scriptures that we benefit from today and more because we have the, the Gospels and the letters and all the way to the revelation of Jesus. We have all of that to benefit from, but even with just what we might say was just the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, he was able to explain what had gone on to them and that this Bible was really about him. And so one of the things we need to remember is the Bible really is about Jesus. It's, it's not about us and and what we've done or who we are, yeah, it gives us some perspective on who we are and what we need and all of that kind of thing, but it really, really is intended to reveal Jesus. And the second thing that we probably should not miss is that our faith needs to be grounded on something other than our personal experience. And so Jesus, by starting with the Bible and pointing to himself, reminds us that we have a solid foundation for Christian faith that comes from the Bible and points to him. And then when we get to him, what he said, what he did, his death, burial, and resurrection that never ends, validates Christian faith. And God is saying to the whole world through the revelation of the scriptures that reveal to us Jesus that he has come 
to rescue us from the effects of sin and to provide for us the best way to live. It's really quite fascinating, and we should not miss that. Don't miss the fact that the Bible is about Jesus and reveals Jesus, and don't miss the fact that Jesus himself is the foundation of Christian faith because he is the one who rose from the dead and resurrection never ends and resurrection validates the truth of the Christian faith. So those are kind of important things to take away from that early conversation there. Now, it's also interesting that that Jesus seemed like he was going to keep walking when the two Emmaus walkers were going to stop and, and he is persuaded by them to remain. Hospitality was important in those days, and so they were they were showing him hospitality by encouraging him to stay and to not go further that day. And and so he is persuaded and he does, and they sit down to to have some bread. Now we don't know if it's a full meal. We know about the bread because it's specifically mentioned. And we know that Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. So couple of things about that. Notice that Jesus took the initiative. Now, there's no overt identification of who's the head of the household here, and should have taken that role. But it is interesting that Jesus took that initiative and took upon himself to, to perform that function, which was a normal function in those days. It wasn't unusual that someone would have done what Jesus did, took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And you could make a whole series of of observations out of that idea that he took, blessed, broke, and gave. And maybe you'll want to do that, but that's not for today. He he took that bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, maybe like he had done many times before with his followers. We don't know that for sure, but maybe he did. And in taking that bread and blessing it and breaking it and giving it to them, their eyes were opened. And now... What we heard earlier when the the story tells us that they were kept from recognizing him, now they were allowed, uh, encouraged. He was revealed to them, and their eyes were opened. And and you know, there's a lot of lot of things we might wonder about that act of of uh, their eyes being opened, but but certainly. There's enough sense of that kind of table fellowship in the scriptures that we can learn from that and to realize that that under appropriate conditions, maybe based on the exposition of the scripture and then the breaking of bread together, that it helps people see the truth about Jesus. And then sure enough, as soon as they saw him, he vanished. Now, other people sometimes at this point in the understanding of this story. They want to make a connection between what happened there at the table with Jesus and what we often call Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper or sometimes Eucharist. Well, if if you look at the text carefully, I can't see any sense that Luke is claiming that Jesus is, is conducting a communion service or a service of the Lord's Supper. It it doesn't seem that way at all. In fact, Jesus himself said he would not participate in that, or at least drink from the fruit of the vine until the great day when we all do it together with him, what we call the marriage supper of the Lamb. So it's, it's not really helpful, I think, to make the connection to, to actually Holy Communion here. But there is a connection between Jesus revealing himself, and, and we want to put ourselves in positions 
to allow Jesus to reveal himself. And certainly, certainly, gathering at the Lord's table is an opportunity for Jesus to reveal himself. And I know people have lots of important discussions about all of that. And I'm glad we do have important discussions because it's important. But we shouldn't miss that God's table of grace is an invitation for us to see Jesus. And I know sometimes people will, will say, well, I'm not good enough. I've had people say that to me, not too many, but a few. I'm, I'm not good enough. And I, I like what one person said about that. They said, you know, refusing to come to the Lord's table because you're saying you're not good enough is like being prescribed medicine that will help you get better and refusing to take it. And I thought that's a pretty good description. Now, let's also go this step further. There are people that hide behind the I'm not good enough for appropriate reasons. And what they mean by that is I'm not repentant and I'm not following Jesus. And so I'm not going to the Lord's table. Now, they don't want to come out and say that. So they hide behind the I'm not good enough and get some sympathy and all that kind of stuff. Well, if you know you're rebelling against Jesus, then stay away. You don't belong there. But if you're really looking for Jesus and seeking and wanting to find, that's the place for you. Now, they kind of sum this stuff up, all this whole story up, when, when they talk to each other and they said that, uh, weren't our hearts burning within us as we walked along and he explained the scriptures to us? And, you know, that's an interesting, interesting description Weren't our hearts burning within us? And I guess we should ask ourselves, when the Bible is read or when we read it ourselves, do we find that our hearts burn within us? Isn't that a clue that we should be alert to something important going on here? And, and isn't it a clue that we should be responding somehow to what God is communicating to us, what the scriptures are saying to us? And, and then they, they also said that, and summarizing all of this, when they went back to Jerusalem, because they did, they went back to Jerusalem and reported all this, that, that it was in the breaking of bread. And so they make these two really important connections at the end here that, that I don't think we should miss. You know, sometimes people will, will listen to somebody like me talk about the Bible, or maybe they will attend a church service. Maybe they'll read a book that prods them to think seriously about spiritual things, and, and maybe it pulls them in the direction of resolving their spiritual issues. Or, or maybe they, they read the Bible story, and, they, and something about it just is intriguing to them, and they can't put their finger on it, but they're just kind of, well, they're in the habit of being reluctant, so they're just, they, just, they just push it away. And this whole idea of our hearts burning within us is something that we should not look past because it is God who reveals himself to us. And without that, we wouldn't know him. And we get a real sense of that in this story, a real illustration of that, when that they were kept from recognizing Jesus and then Jesus was revealed to them. So when you find yourself drawn to God, when you find yourself intrigued by what you read or hear or someone is saying about Jesus. In some, as, as a guy I listened to 
on a podcast. He says, in some limited circles, that kind of thing would be called a clue. And I want to alert you to that as well. If God is speaking to you and you find your heart kind of burning with that kind of stuff, then that's a clue that God is calling. And instead of pushing back from that, why don't you lean into that? Why don't you receive what God is trying to give you? Because we, none of us, will ever know God, will ever know who Jesus is and know him in a personal redemptive sense, unless he reveals himself to us. So when you find your heart kind of responding or burning, as this description is here, why not lean into that and and invite the Lord's further revelation? And why not put yourself in what I like to call the stream of grace? That's what the breaking of bread seems to me was. It was a stream of grace. It was an opportunity for them having placed themselves there to see Jesus revealed. So when you go to church and God begins to talk to you about something, lean into that. Keep yourself in the stream of grace and be open to the revelation of Jesus in your life. So many times I think people get close to that and then they just push it away. Sometimes they push it away because they... They know they're not going to live the life God calls them to live, and they refuse to consider it. In other words, they harden their hearts to God. But let's not take that for granted, because the Bible gives us no guarantee that God will always talk to us. So when he talks to you and you find your heart burning, as these guys did, lean in, receive, invite the living Lord to bring resurrection to your heart because resurrection never ends. We'll be right back on Pastor Rick. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution Cofix Rx. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix Rx nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD at cofixrx.com. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code 
out loud for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it, or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. Working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to Faith Is, where we challenge each other to develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm so glad you're taking this journey. We've walked with these two people to Emmaus, We had our hearts burning within us so that we could be challenged and have the opportunity to have the risen Savior revealed to us. And I'm still encouraging you to lean into that faith because faith is developing absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And you don't do that just by flipping a switch. You do that by getting acquainted with the person you have faith in. And in this case, that's Jesus. And we learned that resurrection never ends, and so that really intrigues us even more, doesn't it? Well, I want to take a minute or two or three, whatever it takes here, to take a look at this whole idea of hymns every Christian should know. And we've been counting down the list. Our church did this earlier this year, and we went through a little bit of a process. It was a little bit more of a process than I thought it was going to be because it took more doing than I expected, but we went from some more than 144 ideas down to to 10 hymns that we think every Christian should know. Now, it's not our favorites, although some of them people will say, yeah, that's my favorite, or that this one over here is my favorite, or several on the list are their favorites. The idea was not to identify our favorites. I think we would have had a different list if we had done that, and that would have been fine. But what we tried to do was come up with the hymns that every Christian should know, as a way to kind of help us encapsulate some of the important things about Christian faith. And so here, for the last few weeks, we've been counting down the the list from 10 to 1, and we're on number 3 this week. But let me review, just to catch you up and to keep us all together, the list a little bit. And, And started with number 10, Jesus Loves Me. You remember that song, Jesus Loved Me, This I Know. Number 9 was Christ the Lord is Risen Today great hymn, good for any day, not just Easter, but we tend to think of it on Easter, and it reminds us that resurrection never ends. Number eight was holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, another absolutely terrific hymn, well worth anybody taking the time to learn. And by the way, some people, this is a little aside, but not a lot, some people resist the idea of hymns these days. Well, Hymns are just a type of musical communication. 
the same as an aria is. If you go to an opera, you'll hear an aria. Or there are arias in oratorios like Handel's Messiah. There are recitatives. That's just a type of music. A hymn is just a musical style with particular characteristics. And some people say, well, I don't like hymns. Well, maybe you don't like hymns. Maybe it's not your style. Okay, that's possible. But maybe you haven't really learned and, and made an effort to get acquainted with them, their melodies, their, their text, the reason they were written. A lot of those kind of things can help us. And sometimes, uh, I think sometimes this is, this is the big barrier. We who lead churches and church music, we sing the hymns in keys that are difficult for people to sing. It's too high, and people just can't wrap their mind around singing something that's inaccessible to them. So there's a lot of reasons that people struggle with that, but don't let that put you off. Don't let anything keep you from that. So, okay, number seven, what a friend we have in Jesus. Number six, a mighty fortress is our God. That's another great, sturdy, amazing hymn. Number five, because he lives, a terrific hymn written by Bill and Gloria Gaither written about the difficulties of life, but realizing that because resurrection never ends, because he lives, that we can face tomorrow, and we can. Number four on our list was the old rugged cross. Particularly appropriate to get to that one during this time of the year. I didn't plan it that way, but thankfully God understands that I'm not that good, so he can make me look good by how this stuff kind of works out. And so that was last week we talked about the old rugged cross. And this week, number three on our list is great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Now, I think that's probably well known, but I'm not sure it's as well known maybe as I think. Although it's it's got to be one of the, the great hymns of all time. And I'm not surprised that our church chose it. And by the way, I didn't manipulate this list. Some people think, well, you pastors, you just make it come out the way you want to. Um, this guy doesn't. I let the people speak for themselves. So this is number three. I want to read the text of it just by way of getting us a little bit of context for, for talking about it. But the text was quite straightforward and quite quite amazing. Stanza one. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Stanza 2. Summer and winter, and springtime and harvest. Sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Stanza three, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousand beside. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Well, that's just a powerful text, and it communicates so much. And it was written by a man named Thomas Chisholm. He was born in Franklin, Kentucky. Now, Franklin, Kentucky is kind of a small place. I don't think I've ever been there. I've been by it. 
I lived in Owensboro, Kentucky for a while. In fact, I graduated from high school when we, when we, we were living there. Our family was living there. Graduated from Davis County High School. And Franklin, Kentucky isn't that far from Owensboro, but I had never had an occasion to go there as far as I can remember. A little bit south and east of Owensboro is Bowling Green, Kentucky, and then a little bit south and west of Bowling Green is Franklin. And you go by it on the highway if you go travel on the highway between Bowling Green and Nashville. But I never was there, and it was just kind of, I guess, an ordinary place based on the things I've read about it. Uh, kind of wonderfully ordinary, you might say. As I read the story, Thomas Chisholm was not the kind of person who was flamboyant or anything. He he grew up on a farm. He was teaching in school. He was the editor of the local paper in Franklin for a while. He became a Christian when he was 26 years old. And not too long after that, he ended up in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, as the business manager and office editor of the Pentecostal Herald publication there. He, he entered the ministry in, in, uh, in 1903, and he was trying to incorporate the scripture as much as possible into the things that he wrote, into the hymns that, like this one, that became Great is Thy Faithfulness. And so he wasn't really writing it out of a, a certain event that took place, you know, that, that formed his thinking and kind of compelled him to write it. It was just his attempt to take the scriptures and to make them into a worthwhile tune, or, or I should say hymn. The tune was written by another man later for this poem. But it was based on Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. You may remember those. It says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so one of the th- reasons to like and to put it on a list of hymns every Christian should know is the fact that it comes from the Bible and it says what the Bible says, great is thy faithfulness. And it recounts that in some specific ways. And I think that's a good thing for us to remember, particularly these days when we look about the the world and we see the ups and downs of things that are going on and we kind of wonder what in the world is happening to things. Um, Great is God's faithfulness. He's not, going to, he's not going to abandon his people. It doesn't mean things will never get more difficult. They have. We've seen that in the Bible. But it means that God is faithful. And we celebrate that with that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. It comes to us from 1923, so it's been around a little while. And it will endure probably for many more years to come. Unless the style becomes completely completely uh, out of style, I think that that hymn will last a while. Well, so we've looked at the Emmaus Road trip, either two men walking or, as one guy said, a man and a woman. You can sort that out a little bit more if you want to. I just find it interesting that people bring those kinds of questions up. We sorted that out and we talked about how their hearts were burning within them, and, and ultimately it resulted in, because they leaned into it, the revelation of Jesus to them. And, and that's just such a wonderful thing. But I thought maybe we should t- take a little time after all of that to, to think about some things. And, and occasionally on the program I've brought up ten things I think. And I don't know if you think about things like I do, or maybe you think about different things, but I've been thinking about things for a while, and I... I don't really 
necessarily always think of 10. I, I got 10 pretty easily this time. But one of them has really been on my mind. And so number one on my list this week of 10 things I think is, is to realize that, and, and I, probably I've said things like this, maybe the same thing before, I don't, don't remember, but too many people today mix politics and moral clarity. And, and I really think that's a problem in the church. Now, we still may not all come to the same conclusions about things. I understand that's a, that's a challenge. Uh, but what I mean by this is that this mix of politics and moral clarity is that people often think of people or candidates or tendencies toward policy when they think about politics. It's either left or right or center or center right or center left, whatever. But they begin to think about, and they, they too often start from their sense of what's the right way to think about things, or what's the candidate that they like because they like the way they look or like something they said, or they dislike what another candidate had said. And, and I want to challenge us to, to have some real clarity on some of these kind of things. It's a good time because in most places, elections are not looming, and so we have a time to step back and think about this. But I would like to encourage you that moral clarity calls for us to examine the issues, not, not based on what we think or who we like in terms of candidates or political parties or political philosophies. But we need to look at the issues of our day based on what God says in the Bible. And, and we have to be willing to let God inform our understanding about these things. And then we have to be willing to conform our decisions on those issues to his perspective. Now, I suspect that will still cause some real challenges and probably some disagreements between people of good hearts. Because a lot of, a lot of our conclusions come from our assumptions, our foundational thinking. But I want to encourage you to ask yourself about the issues. Um, we're, we're really supposed to let the Bible inform us on issues of right and wrong, on issues of moral clarity. And, and we're supposed to, to take our cues from what God says to us. So, you know, it's from simple things like don't steal to more complicated things like what do you do about economic policy? We need to take our clues from God. And yet, in all of those situations, God gives us insight to that. And yes, we will wrestle with them. We'll debate interpretations. That's what the people of God have done forever. And, and we've, got to, we've got to engage in that kind of careful thinking, but we've also got to realize that God wants to teach us what he thinks about that. And instead of saying, well, this is what I think, we should come to that opinion by saying, well, I've looked at the Bible, I've examined the church's history on that position, because the people of God have talked about many of these things for years, um, and, and we need to take that seriously, and, and when we come to the collected wisdom of the church, we need to let that inform our, our thinking. And it's possible that we could disagree with that for maybe sound biblical reasons. I, I wouldn't say you might not find your way there. But I think we have to be very careful that, that we don't come at, at these, ish, these kinds of decisions about politics from our, from our preferences and our assumptions. Um, if we come along and say, well, I don't agree with God on that, you better have a really good reason for saying that because 
when the church has wrestled with what God says for a long time, it's pretty arrogant for us to say, well, I've got it right, and centuries of thinking has gotten it wrong. So think carefully about this business of moral clarity. What is right and what is wrong? How do we respond? Is it different the way we respond as individuals as the way we might respond as a county or a city or a state? We need to ask ourselves those questions when we look at what the Bible says. And are we expecting, see, here's another one of those really important questions. Are we expecting the government to do things for us that the Bible says are our responsibility? And see, if we're expecting the government to do something that that the Bible says is our responsibility, then we're really putting the burden of, of doing what God says on the people around us. And we're not accepting that responsibility ourselves. So uh, think carefully about that. And don't mix your politics and your assumption with moral clarity. Let moral clarity guide your thinking about public policy and its issues. Now, second thing I think is that sometimes people complain that we have only two candidates to choose from when it comes to voting. Well, I hear that complaint with some frequency. I heard it recently on a book that I've been listening to, and, and it always kind of, uh, how should I say, uh, I, people say I use the phrase blows my mind too much, but it kind of blows my mind, okay? And, and the reason it does is because people need to realize that, that yes, we have usually a choice between two people. That's just kind of the way our system works. It's, it's inherent in the design of the way our government system works. Now, people wish that we could have it a different way, but wishing we could have it a different way isn't going to make it so. And sometimes people will mention that they like the parliamentary system because that system seems to give them more choices of candidates. And so they could have a candidate that would better respond to voter concerns. Well, I lived in Canada for four years. I observed their system of government. I have respect for their system of government. It's a parliamentary system. And in many ways, it's similar to ours, but in many ways, it's different. The, the people they elect to their, what we would call Congress, to their parliament, have less freedom to represent the people when they get there than our representatives do here. See, in the parliamentary system, when you are a member of a political party and you get elected, and if your party happens to be the majority party in the system, you are told how to vote, and you better vote the way you're told every time, or they will crush you. I mean, it's just the way it is. So we need to recognize that systems have their strengths and weaknesses, and let's not complain about the way things are. Let's understand it so that we can make good choices. Does that make sense? Let's not complain. Let's find how to solve the, the weaknesses and build on the strengths of our system. So... Yes, as I said, people complain we often have only a choice between two candidates. Well, how do we choose then? How do we decide between one or the other? And a lot of times people will look at the party label and say, well, that's my person, my candidate. Well, that gives us an idea about candidates, but it may not tell the whole story. So we need to, we need to go a little bit beyond that. And sometimes people will say, well, I'm I don't like the way that person said this or the way that person behaved in this situation or something along those lines. Or I just like the way this person looks. 
I've had people, they described a candidate years ago that they didn't like the way that person looked on television. I thought, what in the world? That's just the face God gave them. Well, maybe they could have done better by smiling more. Probably so, but we don't make decisions on that. And I don't think this person was making their decisions based on that. But I would encourage you, when it comes down to choosing, look carefully at what the candidates say they will do if elected. That's a very helpful perspective. Now, I know they'll promise you the moon and people get upset with that. I know they promise a lot and you got to sort the, the berries out from the stems and the branches and that kind of thing. Just the same as you sort the blueberries out when you pick them. But when you look at how they will behave, how they say they will behave, it's always helpful for us to choose the person who will lessen evil. If they have a position that will advance evil, that's a big red flag for me. I want the candidates, even if they don't line up to everything that I think they should, I want a candidate that will pledge to me that they will lessen evil. I think that matters so much. Another thing I think, number four, is that the Bible was given to change us, not for us to change the Bible. We live in a terrible time when everybody wants to change the Bible and make it say what they want it to say. And I, I really have to guard against that myself because I teach about the Bible. And, and I, we need to rec recognize that the Bible was not given to us so we could change it or rewrite it or reinterpret it or whatever you want to say. It, it was meant to change us, to liberate us, to redeem us. Closely related to that, and I've said this before, but I've been thinking about it a lot more lately, that, that we need to look for churches that are closest to the Bible. And so if you're looking for a church, and I hope if you don't have one, you will, I hope the one you attend is close to the Bible. But if you're looking for a church, look for a church that's closest to the Bible, not a church that is closest to your house, or a church that agrees with you. You need to agree with God. That's what I meant when I said the Bible was given to us to change us, not for us to change the Bible. So look for a church that's closest to the Bible that will help you agree with God. Number three, I think, and I know pastors say this all the time, I, I sense this more and more, that we need to spend more time in the Bible. We need to spend more time learning the Bible stories, thinking about the Bible, and letting it form our thinking and our choices in life. Number seven, things I think. We need to spend less time consuming media mindlessly. When you listen to or watch media of some kind, think about what you are hearing and seeing. Evaluate the message and the messenger. Do not sit there mindlessly. It's very easy just to sit there mindlessly. Don't do that. Number eight, things I think. Spend less time watching news and opinion shows. Many people spend way too much time. I think you should be informed. A network like this, America Out Loud, is a good place to get good, solid, honest views on things. And we need to spend less time just consuming stuff and choose carefully so that we get good perspective. And number nine of 10 things I think, a clue as to whether you are consuming too much or the wrong kind of news is your reaction. If you become more anxious and worried and upset about the shape of the world, then step back, that's not helping you. If it just drives you in the wrong direction, step back, step away. It's not helping you. Find things that will inform you. But number 10 of the things I think, find news that will inform you and encourage you to take positive action. 
So resurrection never ends. Grace is being offered to you. Your heart is alive with anticipation and you're embracing and accepting what God is saying to you because now you want to be the person that takes that gift and accomplishes God's will for your life. Go do it. I'm Pastor Rick.